Paris Norsay, or Valenciennes, each priced in piastre. Finally, her hand feels a rectangular object at the bottom of the trunk. She pulls it out. Yes, it's the brown notebook. It smells damp and smoky. Without opening it, she puts it into her bag and quickly walks out. Drops of water festoon the latticework running under the roof of the bungalow. In the garden, she notices, the hollyhocks, which have grown tall and wild over the summer, are fading to pale lavender and watery pink, as if their colors were running with the late summer rain. Her joints are swollen with arthritis, and her fingers a little twisted at the knuckles. She's carrying her big tapestry bag by the handle. She's put on an apron over her dress, as if she were going to the backyard to pick a lettuce or a head of chard for dinner, and a cardigan over it. It's cool by the ocean. Her legs are covered with thick white cotton stockings. On her feet are the slippers with soft soles and gray pom-poms, and the rubber galoshes over them. The dories are leaning drunkenly, pastel blotches in the morning sun, their masts teetering low above the wet sand. Just as they had that day when he had come up to her, in his big black overcoat, holding his hat over his chest, bowing. When she was a young bride, before the birth of Danielle, Armand had taken her to Paris, and they had gone to visit an exhibition of paintings everybody was talking about. The canvases were covered with tiny splashes of color that blurred when you came up close. But if you took a step back, the scene quivered to life. People said it was sloppy, not good art, that it was influenced by the new daguerreotypes. And yet now, the beach in the late morning, dotted with the hulls of the dories, mottled with the flickering shadows cast by high, windswept clouds, reminds her of those paintings. She spreads the blanket at the foot of the dunes, sits down, removes her rubber galoshes, and takes the notebook out of her tapestry bag. Forty years, she thinks again. Forty years that she hasn't seen it or even opened that trunk. She opens it. A few letters and yellowed newspaper clippings slip out on her lap. Some of the pages are stuck together. She separates them carefully in order not to tear them. Several pages are covered by foreign words dotted with accents. Camon. Chao. Chao tambiet. Biet. Chok ngu nga da. Ke bang. Bun ryu. Fianam. Ko chien. Chandu, Kaiman, Lamjidongkwa, Oi Dao, Na Kwe, Boi Toi. She reads the words slowly one after another. Most don't mean anything to her anymore. A loose page in a thick paper folded four times reveals a row of Chinese characters. One of them, she recognizes, spells out her name. The others are indecipherable to her now. She leaves back to the beginning of the diary and reads the first entry. April 12th, 1898 Saw A on the beach yesterday. They say things always happen for a reason. Do they? April 1898 She was not yet 32. La Faute April 3rd, 1898 she was lying on her stomach, chin resting on folded hands, her stocking toes digging into the sand, an open parasol next to her, and watching her son, 
Daniel, a gawky boy who had just turned twelve. It was at La Tranche, Palm Sunday. After lunch at Tante Millienne's, Daniel had carried his fronds to the beach to see if they'd been cut from the reeds growing on the dunes. They had. He brandished them victoriously to show her he was right, dropped them in the sand, and ran off toward the ocean. She had a dog-eared copy of Balzac's Eugénie Grandet open in front of her, but she wasn't reading. The pages were covered with sand, the grains had gathered in the crack of the book. And just like that, he had walked into her sun and squatted next to her. His hat was in his hands between his knees, his face in deep shadow. It was the same beach, only a few kilometers up the coast, with the same wide-open horizon, a horizon of the end of the world. The only sound, the squeal of the seagulls tearing at the cottony piece of the morning, now as then. He had moved sideways, so that the sun had suddenly flashed into his blue eyes. Don't you remember me? he'd said. And she'd said, no, not looking at him. It was too unexpected, a ghost from another life, this man in the big black overcoat and the black fedora and the waxed black shoes. What did he have in common with a slender blonde boy running barefoot in the sand carrying crates of mussels? He crouched and looked into her eyes and smiled. She saw the tiny chip on his front tooth. He was looking into her face so intimately that in spite of having two children and a husband, she blushed like a girl. She lowered her eyes to her book and closed it. He read the title upside down. Eugénie Grandet, he said. Yes. Have you ever read it? Yes. It was awkward, ridiculous even. They were alone. She could see Danielle by the jetty, his tiny silhouette bending over or squatting, she couldn't tell. Your son, he said. How do you know? He shrugged. It's not hard to guess. When did you get married? Monsieur. He nodded. He traced the figure eight in the sand with his finger. But Danielle was already running back, his pants rolled up on his skinny calves, holding his shoes in his hands in front of him like a present. Dropping to his knees next to them, he upended one of the shoes. Small pink and white shells tumbled out of it. He had gotten up then brushed the sand off his overcoat, off his hands, put his fedora back on. He looked tall, taller than she remembered, and wider across the shoulders. He had grown into a man. Now that he had his hat on, she couldn't see his eyes anymore. He was standing against the sun and hesitated for an instant. Danielle looked up from the heap of shells he had gathered and watched him silently, not saying anything. He touched his hat and bowed. Au revoir, madame. Au revoir, monsieur, she replied. Later, after he had left and they were walking toward the road, Danielle would ask her with a sulky look on his face, Who was that man? And does father know him? And she would say to her son, perhaps a little too testily, Mêle-toi de ce qui te regarde. Mind your own business. She counted the years on her fingers. She was thirty-one then. They had met for the first time fifteen years earlier, when she was sixteen. It was the summer of 1882, or was it eighty-three? She was losing her bearings. One thing she knew for sure, she hadn't passed her brevet yet. 
It was low tide, the same golden time in the late afternoon as it is now. On this part of the Atlantic coast, the ocean can withdraw as far as a mile out and roll back up, as they say, as fast as a galloping horse. She is headed toward the little group of boys, toward the open sea, her long braids flapping against her back. In those days, there were reeds growing on the dunes, but no casino, no wooden cabins, and certainly no bathers. Holding her long white muslin skirt up with her fists, she is running in the damp sand, leaping over the puddles of seawater. Her fine leather boots are wet, but she doesn't care. The boys are coming back from the mussel beds, unloading crates of shells from a dory stacking them up. All tan legs and muscular arms, and a dusting of mustache on their upper lips. Her cousin, Jules, is among them, helping out for the summer, still white as a turnip under his long-sleeved shirt. She's come with her sisters, Berta and Angelina, to tell Jules the carriage is waiting to take them back to the farm for dinner. But it's Antoine whom she wants to see. He's the tallest one, the blonde with the blue eyes. His pant legs are rolled up on his calves, his shoulders are square and deeply tanned. The fine down on his arms is almost white from the sun. He's watching her run toward their little group, as if he knew something about her she doesn't know herself. She won't speak to him, only to Jules. Doesn't even look at him. But he knows. She can feel it. He steps right into her path, and she almost trips and falls into his arms. She pretends to be angry, but she giggles. He pulls on one of her braids. I want to show you something, he says. But first, you've got to take off your shoes. She hesitates.